I'm David Creech. Welcome back to my presentation of God's Amazing Plan. In this sixth lesson, what I've called puzzle piece number six, we're going to be talking about the penalty of sin. So now that we know what sin is, and we understand what the consequences of sin are, what does God say about the penalty for sin? We keep talking about how God is just. And because of his justice, he demands that the penalty be paid and that it be applied equally to all mankind. But what does that mean? What is the penalty? Now notice that we keep returning to this passage in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, where God states that the wages of sin, or the price of sin, or the penalty of sin is death. And the truth is, God has always required death, the shedding of blood, as payment for sin. In an earlier lesson, we talked about two kinds of death, the death of the body and the death of the soul. Here we are talking about a third kind of death, something called sacrificial death. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. That is, there is no forgiveness of sin. Now that whole shedding of blood thing may sound somewhat barbaric to us. But it should stand as a clear indicator to us of the seriousness of sin. It's as if God has said, if you break one of my laws, something must die in order to make it right again. That is how serious sin is to a holy God. It has been said that if if we could somehow take the Bible and wring it out, that it would drip blood. The reason for that is not because our God is a bloodthirsty God, as many critics of the Bible claim, but because of God's divine justice, and because that divine justice requires the shedding of blood as payment for sin. The Bible drips blood, not because of God, but because of us, because of our stubbornness, because given a choice, we continue to choose to disobey our Creator, the God of heaven. Now, in the Bible, this penalty was applied differently, depending on whether we're talking about the Old Testament or the New Testament. We already talked about how the Old Testament was written for our learning, how it serves as a warning to us, how, how it was a, a teacher to bring us to Christ and to help us to understand the New Testament, how it served as a shadow of things to come. So let's talk first about how the penalty for sin was applied in the Old Testament and that will help us understand how it is applied in the New Testament, how it is applied to us today. 
In the Old Testament, the word atonement is used to describe this process. The word atonement has at its root a Hebrew word that means to cover or to coat over. The same Hebrew word is used to describe what Noah was instructed to do with the ark when he finished building it, to coat the inside and the outside with pitch. The the joints and the imperfections had to be covered over before the ark could serve God's purpose as an instrument of salvation. In similar fashion, the imperfections of the sinner had to be covered over, not with pitch, but with blood. The life of a sacrificial animal was required in exchange for the life of the worshiper. Now, many times this sacrificial animal was a lamb, but regardless of what was used, it had to be spotless and without blemish. You couldn't just wade out into your flock of sheep and grab one that was lame, you know, one that wasn't good for much anyway. No, it, it had to be the absolute best, without spot or blemish. So here was the process in the Old Testament. In, in Leviticus chapter 17, and verse 11, God said, The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for your souls. Now, the figure on the right here represents the guilty, uh, with black representing sin. The blood of the covenant, excuse me, the blood of the, the innocent was exchanged for the blood of the guilty. That innocent blood covered the sinner's imperfections. And as we've already said, that's called atonement. Now, with those imperfections, those sins covered, the sinner was made holy again. Recall that we said the word holy means morally pure or blameless. That process of making someone or something holy again is called sanctification, or could be described as being sanctified. Now, being sanctified, that is, being made holy again, allowed God as a righteous judge to treat them as if they were completely innocent, as if they had never sinned in the first place. That's called justification or being justified. It may seem like an oversimplification, but I heard someone say one time that a good way to remember what justified means is that it's justified never sinned. And finally, being treated as if they'd never sinned meant that they could have a restored spiritual relationship with a holy God. And that's called reconciliation. We asked earlier how a sinner could have a relationship with a holy God who cannot be in the presence of sin. We simply stated that it was God's love for us that had taken that into account and that a way had been made for that penalty to be paid, even though we cannot pay ourselves? Well, this is the long answer to that question. It may seem complicated with all these big words, but simply know that all this happens with the shedding of blood. Innocent blood. The death of the animal 
was evidence of God's justice, that the penalty for sin must be paid. And the fact that something else could pay for man's sin was evidence of God's love and mercy toward them. What about the New Testament then? Earlier we referred to the New Testament as a newer and final agreement between God and all of mankind. So how is the penalty for sin different in this perfect or complete law of liberty? Well, for one thing, the process is not called atonement in the New Testament. Under the New Testament law, God was not looking to continue covering over sins, but to completely wash them away. Now, a perfect law required a perfect sacrifice. Jesus Christ came to provide that sacrifice. In John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist sees Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God. Now, why do you suppose John would call Jesus that? It seems like a rather strange thing to call someone, doesn't it? He called Jesus the Lamb of God because he knew that Jesus Christ had come into the world to be that sacrificial lamb in order to take away the sin of the world. And just like the sacrificial lamb of the Old Testament, Jesus could only be the sacrificial lamb for the world if he was completely innocent without spot or blemish. Now, 1 John 3, 5 tells us that in him there was no sin. You may recall from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or no forgiveness of sin. Well, Jesus would say in Matthew 26 and verse 28, on the eve of his crucifixion, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So, similar to that process of atonement in the Old Testament, we see that by Christ's death on the cross, by the shedding of his innocent blood, we are washed, we are sanctified, and we are justified before God. We see that in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 11. And, and that leads to reconciliation with a holy God, as we see in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 20. Now, keep in mind that although the process was very similar between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the difference was that Jesus came to provide a perfect sacrifice, something that the Hebrews writer said could not be done with the blood of bulls and goats or lambs. Sin is real. The consequences of sin are real. The penalty for sin is very real. The good news is that the price has been paid by Jesus. We don't have to go out and kill an animal and offer it up on an altar somewhere for our sins or for the sins of our family. And we don't have to repeat that process every time we sin. Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice once for all time. 
When we studied the life of Christ, we see that he was so much more than just an innocent man. He spent his whole life serving and loving and teaching others. During the last three years of his life, he healed the sick, raised the dead, walked on water, fed multitudes of people. Apparently, Jesus did so much more than what is recorded in the Gospels. Uh, John the Apostle would say in John chapter 21 and verse 25 that there were many other things that Jesus did which if they were written one by one, even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And yet, despite all the good that he did, he was falsely accused, unjustly tried, and wrongfully convicted. God allowed him to be mocked, ridiculed, beaten, and spat upon. He was forced to carry his own cross up Calvary's hill where they nailed him to it. He suffered and died there. Not because he had to, but, well, because we needed him to. And because he loved us that much. There's a song we sometimes sing that says, He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. Now, my Bible says in Matthew 26 and verse 53 that Jesus could have called not 10,000 angels, but 12 legions of angels. That's 72,000 angels if you do the math. And I'm reminded of what one angel was able to do in 2 Kings chapter 19. That, that one angel killed 185,000 Assyrians in the space of one evening. Imagine what 72,000 angels can do. Now, I don't know if we're supposed to take that number literally, but I can tell you this. With the full power of heaven at his fingertips, he suffered willingly for mankind. He paid a debt he did not owe for one we could never pay. And before he died, as he hung there in agony, surrounded by those that had caused him so much pain and anguish, he cried out, as we see in Luke chapter 23 and verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they have done. That is absolutely powerful, and that is what the good news is all about. Because of sin, we were separated from God. What we needed was a bridge, a way back to God. Someone once said, God built that bridge with just a hammer and three nails. While that might be a clever saying, we must never forget that it was so much more than just a hammer and three nails. Sin separated us from God. It was a lack of love, if you will, that separated us from God. And it was an abundance of love, the love of a Savior that brought us back together again. And before we talk about how we are expected to respond to the gospel, to this good news, 
we need to talk about the role faith plays in it. We mentioned earlier how there are two parts to salvation. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 tells us that we are saved by grace through faith. And grace is God's part. Now, we can't have grace for ourselves. Only God can do that. And an obedient faith is our part. God can't be obedient for us, and God can't have faith for us. And so that leads us up to puzzle piece number seven, faith. You know, I appreciate your kind attention and, and look forward to seeing you in the next class.